welcome glad. listeners to Connect the Dots. I'm Allison Rose Levy, and I'm here every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. I'm a longstanding journalist covering food, health, and the environment, public policy, media criticism, and popular attitudes that contribute to the state of our democracy and the state of the world. Um, Connect the Dots connects the dots between your personal well-being and what's going on in your community, your region, our country, the society, uh, and planet Earth. And we talk uh, to different experts, thought leaders, advocates, authors, um, filmmakers, scientists, economists, journalists, a whole host of different people that each have a focus or take on different aspects of our interconnected world trying to get a sense of the whole picture and how we can interact with it um, as advocates, as citizens, and sometimes as consumers as well, although that's not my primary focus, um, you know, to kind of better our world and create a more health-centric society uh, on hopefully a more ecologically sustainable and balanced planet. I'm really thrilled to have today's guest on the show. Um, Tom Philpot is the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones. He was previously food editor and columnist for the environmental website Grist. And actually, I think I had first encountered uh, Tom and his work even earlier than that, before you were even at Grist, Tom. Um, he also wow. has not just a theoretical understanding of our theme, which is one that we cover very often on Connected Dots, um, which is the food and agriculture. Um, you know, sector of our world, which is fundamental to our lives, to our nutrition, to our health, to our viability, uh, to our survival. Need I say more? Um, We've covered that a lot. We've had a lot of different people uh, on the show over the 11 years or so of the show. Um, But what's interesting uh, among, as well as Tom's outstanding journalism, which is, um, you know, captured and conveyed brilliantly in his new book, um, Perilous Bounty, but he also has on the earth, on the soil, uh, a farming experience um, as kind of the seed, the root of his reporting and his engagement uh, in this important area. And he uh, co-founded a small organic farm and, you know, the insights and uh, in-depth analysis of the American food system which is which you'll find in Perilous Bounty, um, you know, is very rooted uh, for that reason, you know, and I think it's it's uh, one thing, it's not so rooted in it that Tom, you know, can't get his head above talking to other farmers about farming kind of thing, which sometimes happens uh, with experts. Um, but, you know, that rootedness is there and gives the book tremendous strength. So I'm really delighted, uh, Tom Philpot, to welcome you to Connect the Dots. Very excited to be here. Thank you so much. Um, so, you know, in a way, and, you know, I don't want to, like, get over hypey. I mean, I have known Michael Pollan from childhood, and I knew him, you know, before he wrote really? On the Board's Dilemma. Yeah, because I knew him as a kid. So, <laughs> you know, um, so, and actually, you know, he is a close friend of my brother, as it happens. So, you know, lifelong and everything. So, you know, I've followed his whole trajectory and uh you know there's no doubt that the omnivore's dilemma is you know is the breakthrough book um and a tour de force and you know the thing that that you know the looming question 
which people, you know, keep repeating from the book ever since then, and he may even introduce this slightly earlier, is know where your food is coming from. And the reality is that um, that has become, you know, a kind of uh, battle cry uh, for people seeking, and I'm definitely in this group myself, you know, to eat healthier food and access healthier food as consumers and, you know, support the farmers who grow it. Um, but the reality is that there's also this bigger picture of the food that has been grown and produced and industrialized um, to feed everybody. So we kind of have, you know, in a way, two different worlds, um, you know, the kind of ideal frame that some of us either through our locale uh, in rural regions or others through, uh, you know, economic wherewithal um, have, have been accessing. And then there's actually, you know, the food that everybody accesses. Um, and, you know, and the fact is we're all uh, connected to that. Even if we're eating, you know, the best quality organic food, the other food is there. And it's not merely a, a question of blaming other people for poor food choices because they lack the access to the economic wherewithal that you have. It's really about understanding the system that we're all caught in, all of us are caught in, and where various choice points and, and social policy decisions and business decisions and things that are going on in our ecology have set us on a course um, that we're all uh, you know, implicated in and that we're all going to feel the effects of. And so that's why I find, excuse me, this book, Perilous Bounty, particularly important and timely right now in really painting that picture and not in a way of like, here's how I could escape it, you know, by doing something in my kitchen garden, but really looking at its overall impacts. Um, so, you know, one of the things that really impressed me, Tom, and maybe you can do this for listeners, is your kind of total mastery of the agricultural map of the United States and what we're doing in different regions and how those regions and our expectations of the foods that have, are coming from them um, is in a, in a process of devolution that will be quite impactful. Um, so do you want to kind of lay down a little bit of a roadmap so that we can look at some of those, you know, kind of big effects that are in motion and that have been, you know, laid in motion and that are now reaching endpoints in certain places, in a lot of places? Sure. So, so what I kind of do in the book is I, like you said, I look at the map and I ask, what are the regions that produce most of the food we eat? And mm -hmm. it's you know, you, you don't have to dig in for very long before you realize there are two main regions, and those are California, um, which is, you know, got a Mediterranean climate and, um, you know, in some ways great water resources, and we'll talk a little bit more about that more um, in a bit, I'm sure. Um, and so that is a great place to grow fruits and vegetables and nuts, and so... You know, if you are in the United States, um, basically anywhere in, in the United States, almost year-round, if you go into a grocery store, a sort of conventional grocery store, or really even a Whole Foods, 
Um, the, the great bulk of fruits and vegetables are going to be in California, even during the growing season of your region. Um, and, then, you know, past 20 years, maybe you'll go into a conventional supermarket and you'll see some local produce that'll be, um, you know, sort of advertised as such. But the great bulk of the stuff in there is um, either coming from California or imported. Um, and then, so that's sort of the fruits and vegetables on our plate. And then if you look at the meat, um, and, you know, we have this, you know, incredible um, meat-centric diet here in the U.S. Um, we eat um, something like 220 pounds of it per capita a year. So it's more than a half a pound a day per capita. Um, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner um, for, for a lot of people. And so that, you know, the sort of area where that comes from is the upper Midwest, the, the state known as the Corn Belt. And not necessarily all the animals are grown there. There are, you know, huge uh, livestock, livestock industries, uh, you know, basically poultry, um, comes, you know, a lot of poultry, most poultry comes from, you know, Maryland, area starting in coastal Maryland down to Arkansas, um, this belt of uh, really intensive poultry production, hog farming, there's a huge concentration in North Carolina, um, and also in Iowa, but the corn and the soybean that, grew, that goes into the system that feeds those animals that all comes from these few states clustered in the Midwest that we call the Corn Belt, uh, Illinois, Iowa, Missouri, um, and a few other states, Nebraska. Um, and so, you know, what I do in the book is I say, so we've got these two regions that really underpin our grocery stores, our fast food restaurants, our most of the restaurant industry, the institutions like hospitals, schools, and corporate cafeterias. You know, basically, um, the, the sustenance of the nation um, largely originates in these two places. And so what I do in the book, and, I, you know, I kind of had this insight, um, I think around 2015. So around 2015, Cal California is locked in this epochal, you know, probably the worst drought, the, the worst route in a, a couple of million years, I'd say, like the longest, according to the fossil record, uh, the, the, long, the, the biggest route in a very, very long time, um, since well before humans um, sort of entered the earth, uh, the, you know, the sort of epochal drought is happening in California, um, really uh, putting pressure on this system that, that creates this bounty of fruits and vegetables. And Right around that time, there were these massive storms that lashed the Midwest um, right in the April, May, you know, time period. These huge storms come through into the Corn Belt, and they, I did a story on how they caused this, these incredible soil erosion events, like these massive, there's this researcher at Iowa State University, comes up in the book a lot, named Richard Cruz, and I interviewed him for this piece, and um, what it turned out was that this spectacular soil erosion event was really just one in, you know, a, um, a trend that had been going on for a long time of massive soil loss in the Midwest. And so I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, well, my reporting in California is telling me that 
this drought is happening is, you know, basically exposing overuse of water that goes back decades in California and making it impossible to ignore. And these storms in the Midwest, the opposite of a drought in the Midwest, is destroying soil. And it turned out, I learned from my interview in this research, that this is a long-term trend that goes back a couple of decades and isn't getting any better. And I thought, wow, so the two regions that that we rely on to feed us that are just, you know, we, even during this COVID-19 crisis, you can go into a supermarket and there's going to be shortages of a few items like flour or pasta or whatever. But basically the sort of bounty you expect in the meat counter, even with all the troubles that the meat industry has had that are just horrific, um, you know, the meat counter and the vegetable um, aisle are still, for the most part, bustling with the same bounty. And I just realized that the ecological basis of it is in the slow unraveling uh, in both cases. And um, I just, you know, was stunned not to see any real high-level effort at the policy level in D.C. or in California or in, you know, the states like Iowa to address it. It was just, you know, let's just keep this going and patch it up. And that, that, that was really the basis of the book, the, the sort of germ of the idea of the book, and it's sort of what I tease out in, in it. Wow, that's really fascinating. You know, um, you, that core message, which is that, you know, we are kind of happily just, you know, it's the same thing that's occurred uh, in the in the front of fossil fuel use. You know, we are just burning through these resources. That has repercussions, the range of repercussions, you know, environmental and ecological repercussions. The range of the repercussions is slightly different because, Although, in effect, we also are dealing in, in using, you know, kind of late-stage excavation and all of that for gas and oil. You know, we're, we're, we've kind of uh, overused the resources and are now scraping the b bottom of the barrel, and that produces, uh, you know, tremendous climate impacts and is, a, a, you know, one yeah. major driver of climate change. Um, but here in the same way, we are depleting, you know, without looking at that, we are depleting how what to do about it or anything else. I had uh, Fred Kirshenman, whom you reference in the book, on the mm -hmm. on this podcast, and I think it was probably 217 or so, and he was making your core point, and I'm sure has influenced your thinking because he's been a major pioneer in this whole area. And he was he kept saying, you know, the inputs, the nitrogen, the things that we need. He wasn't talking so much as you do in the book, which I think is fantastic, about water depletion. Um, because we have water depletion from multiple angles in our industrialized society. But he was speaking about nitrogen and uh, depletion, you know, and the depletion of the inputs into conventional agriculture. Um, mm. And I actually, you know, he was very pointed on it in the interview, and I actually did an article on it for Truth Out, um, you know, that had a slightly other focus, but where he had the kind of crime quote making that point. And the thing that really struck me was that it, it didn't register, you know, it doesn't register with people. You know, we say things 
like know where your food comes from and you still have an army of people out there thinking that, you know, consumer choice is going to solve all of this and they're campaigning for us to, you know, whether they're healthcare practitioners or just health-oriented people, let's eat more healthy food. But the um, assumption implied in that emphasis, it's all about you and your food choices, where does your food come from? Is that you have a, an infinite option, you know, um, both ecologically and uh, economically. And that just simply isn't true, right? Um, and we really have right. to face up to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, what kind of – let's talk about what kind of trajectory from – and then we can move on to water. What kind of trajectory you, you know, see us on? with, you know, this kind of de depletion cycle? Well, um, you know, I, I don't see a whole lot. I see a whole lot of momentum in keeping it going. Um, you know, the mm -hmm. thing about California is that California, the drought got so bad in the first half of this, uh, the last decade, let's say around 2011, 2016, um, the, the the water situation got so bad um, that the California state government was basically forced by reality to um, give up, you know, in, an entire history, its entire history of the state, it had uh, declined to regulate groundwater. So the surface mm -hmm. water, the stuff coming off the mountains that goes through canals and, you know, it's dammed up and goes through canals, that stuff is highly regulated and basically pushed all push to farming. All you know, 80% of it, of that water that comes off the mountains, called surface water, is um, shunted into these ever bigger and thirstier farm farming operations. But they weren't regulating groundwater. So if you you could sort of um, if you had a piece of land, you could tap a straw into it, tap a well and take as much water out as you wanted, even though, of course, aquifers don't respect property lines. Um, and so it's a, that's actually a, co a common resource, but landowners were able to tap it. And the, the drought forced a, a, a slow motion reckoning with reality. And they passed the law in 2015 under Jerry Brown that every distressed water basin, which is basically all the agricultural water basins, have to go into balance by 2040. And what that means is they can't extract any more than naturally replenishes, and the replenishment rate is very low. And so that law, unless, you know, the big ag forces um, force it to, um, you know, force it to, to be undone, to be repealed, um, that's going to force a reckoning on California. It's going to force uh, California farming to use less water. And I think it's going to, you know, I think U.S. policymakers, when they sort of wake up and stop, you know, screwing around with, um, and, you know, basically ignoring climate change and um, other things like that, it's going to force um, a, what I call a decaliforniacation of fruit and vegetable hmm. production. It's going to force you know, us to move beyond just the sort of niche uh, farmer's market operations and figure out 
how to get mid-scale farms across the country to be able to, to be viable and to produce food, fruits and vegetables to take pressure off of California. I, I think that that's, this has got to happen because the reality is that California is outstripping its water resources and there's this piece of legislation in place. And I think there's going to be a lot of pickups. Um, I, we, we need to be preparing for this now and we're not. Um, I mean, it's in, you know, it, it's become a, um, a, a thing that ends up in Democratic presidential platforms, and it's actually in the draft Biden platform to reinvest in regional food infrastructure, but rarely is much of anything done about it, and, um, and maybe it will be in the next, um, you know, four years. We'll have to see. Um, that's California. On the Midwestern front, um, in this um, massive soil erosion problem that's happening there, you know, basically the research that I did suggests that uh, farms in the Midwest are losing soil at a rate 16 times faster than it can be replenished. And that obviously can't go on for, forever. There's only so much soil. And, of course, you know, when these farms, when the soil washes off the farm, this is like beautiful topsoil that has developed over millennia um, in, you know, these former prairie and um, wetland regions of the, of the current Corn Belt. Um, when that stuff washes away, it's not just the soil that is being washed away. It's all the chemicals that they're adding to it. And so, you know, we've got a water, a water crisis in the Midwest. It's different than the California water crisis. Um, it's a crisis of polluted water. Um, so water pollution and tainted drinking water with the kind of fertilizers that Fred Christman was talking about is super common in the Midwest. And uh, so that's one of the problems. But the existential problem there is the loss of soil. And unlike the case of California, I don't see any limiting factor on that that exists. And in fact, um, Biden's platform it, um, it calls for, um, you know, more ethanol. He, you know, he, he, wants, he wants to boost the ethanol industry, um, which just means more corn, which just means, you know, less biodiversity, which just means more soil erosion. And so on the policy front right now, um, there, there is no, um, you know, it's really hard to imagine any kind of break on that kind of system. And so I just see it. Um, you know, going downhill. Now, I should say that um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren, both in their platforms before they were um, knocked out of the race, both of them had good plans that, um, that would have had a, a, a positive effect. Um, I end by, you know, I finished writing my book when the Democratic primary is very competitive. And it didn't seem like Biden was going to get very much traction at all. And it right. ends on sort of that, it, it, it ends on that sort of semi-hopeful note. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think maybe those, both of those figures could be influential in, in the Biden administration. You know, you've got, also you've got um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, um, you know, sort of gaining influence and, you know, the, the Green New Deal that she uh, the process that she initiated a couple of years ago has a lot of promise. 
or creating a new kind of agriculture in the Midwest. And I, I think those are the big, you know, those right now, as we look on the horizon, are the biggest points of possible hope that these sort of progressive, you know, powerful progressive Democrats that have popular, actual popular bases. They're not powerful because, you know, they get a lot of money from corporations. They're powerful because they've inspired, um, you know, public support from people concerned about what, the way things are going. Um, I think politicians like that and the, you know, the social movements that that gave them power are really the only hopeful thing um, that I see on that front. Um, otherwise, I feel like the Midwest is, you know, the, the Corn Belt farming region is heading toward a cliff. Mm-hmm. Let me just do a pause right there, and we'll kind of continue with this uh, theme of, you know, the, the devolution occurring on multiple fronts. Um, but, but let's just, you know, I'm just hitting the pause button here to ask a question because, you know, I spent the last, you know, Two years since 218, you know, the 218, uh, you know, elections that brought in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, I actually championed her even before The Intercept discovered her because I live in, you know, I'm a New Yorker. Um, And so, and I had many, many programs on the Green New Deal, uh, you know, discussing many different facets of it with people who are expert in in different facets. Um, You know, the... You know, the Green New Deal does not fully spell out, but does, you know, kind of contain a line item or so um, that some of which was misunderstood, but some of which was not, which really kind of points toward a change in the agricultural system toward, uh, you know, regenerative agriculture, which draws down carbon that has been released by fracking and, and uh, you know, wholesale livestock raising, you know, into the atmosphere, creating this climatological problems, bringing it down into an enriched soil, which is also, uh, you know, growing vegetables, raising livestock, holding water, uh, preventing dehydration, um, non-contaminated because it's not using toxic chemicals. And we've had many, 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 many episodes of uh, Connect the Dots on Regenerative Agriculture. But one of the things that I um, also have observed in going into the communities of farmers um, who were champions of this method of growing, um, you know, is there kind of a couple of questions that sort of, I mean, there's one question that, that, well, there are really two questions, and they don't have, I've never heard a clear answer, and, uh, you know, and, and I've asked a lot. And, uh, you know, and, and I'd love to hear your perspective on these two questions. And the first question is, how do we bring about these kinds of progressive policy changes, or call them what you will, some might say conservational, you know, policy changes. How do we bring them about when, for example, the farmers themselves, even the farmers who are championing the most advanced, you know, regenerative, restorative, uh, you know, environmentally uh, po- positive, you know, carbon neutral or carbon, you know, detracting methods are very often caught in a political libertarian mindset uh, as independent, you know, entrepreneurs, and that's their only conception of how, um, you know, this evolution could proceed, which creates a political obstacle 
to implementing these policies is the very people who have the wherewithal and the interest to be doing this, you know, disengage and, and, and you know, aren't playing a constructive and supportive advocacy role within the political movement. So that's one question, and then I have another one after that. I mean, I'd love okay. to hear you yeah. circulate with Yeah. Anything. Yeah. That is a really great question because I I agree with that sort of the um, the way that American U.S. farming has developed the sort of you know basically this um, settler colonial model that um, that our our farming comes from of you know basically like you know the Midwest was um, was was gra- it was a land grab. Uh, that happened, and then there was the um, the program that gave settlers from the Northeast or from the you know the Eastern United States incentives to come over and you know get a piece of land for free and call it their own, and um, you know that underpinned the sort of farmer as rugged individualist. Now I should yeah. also say, and, and I think that prevails, but we have also that the model is so flawed. And I think I, I um, do a good job. Sorry about that. I do a good job in the book of um, of making it clear how you know that this mythology of the rugged individualist farmer, um, you know, basically it pits farmers in endless competition with each other, while their suppliers and buyers, people who sell them seeds and chemicals and fertilizers and um, and buy their their crops and, you know, turn their corn and soybeans into meat, those companies are super consolidated and face very little competition. And so they have all the power. And that rugged individualist uh, mentality um, is extremely destructive for farmers. And, I, you know, I, I don't get into this in the book, but we have had in our country in the past century or more than a century, various populist movements among farmers. And what those are are basically the realization that, you know, if we try to be rugged and go alone, we're, we're lost. These, these giant, um, you know, trusts. Uh, and, you know, I would say basically now we have seed trusts, you know, basically seed pesticide trusts, we have meat trusts. These giant entities will crush us if we go alone. And so we got to figure out ways to come together and be more cooperative. And I think that, you know, a revival of rural populism, left-wing rural populism, um, that doesn't try to thrive on finding some other scapegoat, but actually does an economic analysis of what, what's, what's going on and, um, and figures out ways to collectivize and come together and, you know, band together to create more power, I think, um, is is going to be um, absolutely fundamental. And you do see strains of, you know, sort of remnant strains of populism in, in the United States uh, with stuff like the, um, the um, let's see, what are the groups called? NFFC, National Family Farmer Coalition, um, uh, mm-hmm. Missouri Rural Crisis. Uh, there are a couple of groups and, and individuals like George Naylor who who harken mm-hmm. back yep. to yep. this um, this kind of uh, proud legacy of, uh, of rural populism, and I, I think I think that's one thing. And I think figuring out how to support 
um, that kind of movement is really important. And then another way around it is, um, you know, thinking specifically about the Midwest, the Corn Belt. You know, if you look at U.S. crop subsidies, um, and I know, I mean, everyone knows about crop subsidies. Um, they're still a thing. They haven't gone away. Um, they happen in recent years, and just looking at a chart, um, at a rate of between 15 and $30 billion every year. Um, and I think that, um, you know, this is a, a, a serious contradiction for your sort of libertarian Farm Bureau types where they, you know, praise the free market and, you know, talk you know, just the same kind of uh, stuff that you were just um, talking about, the sort of rugged, rugged individualist idea of farming, and yet they will defend these, um, these, these subsidies to the death. And what I say about that is, um, as someone who's studied farm, farming and been a farmer, I'm not against subsidies. I'm not against uh, public support for farming, but I think that it's um, very fair to ask for um, for things in return. Um, you know, if you want to get your you know your hands on, and, and we can talk you know if you want about why I think that um, that farming is something that needs public support, but I think we can also ask uh, farmers in the Midwest. If you want this level of support, if, you know, your income is relying on and guaranteed by this kind of support, then there are some things that we need in exchange, um, and not just um, a whole bunch of overproduced corn and soybeans. Um, we want clean water. We want your farms to run in a way that uh, you're not polluting water for millions of people in the Midwest and making a giant dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico every year. Um, we would like to see you sequestering uh, carbon in the soil uh, because that actually makes the soil more resilient to climate change. It uh, makes it less prone to getting washed away in massive floods. Um, it makes it less prone to, you know, crop, you know, basically crop failure when a, when a drought hits. Um, and so instead of basically paying farmers to overproduce corn and soybeans, which is a deal that even though they're, you know, anti-socialist and, um, you know, free market libertarians, they're, they're happy to get. They're happy to get this public support. Let's pay them to do things that actually benefit society. Um, and I think that that is a frame. You know, and so what you're basically saying is, hey, you know, we can, you know, continue with a sort of um, – American tradition of property rights. Like, okay, you know, there are only so many things we can tell you that you have to do in your property. However, if you want, you know, $40,000 a year in government support, then you have to do X, Y, and Z to get it. Otherwise, hey, you're on your own. You're, you know, go be a rugged individualist. And I think that um, that is a fair bargain. Um, and I think that you know, the problem with it is, and I think the political problem that has to be figured out is how to get farmer support, um, you know, how to figure out how to make farmers not be an impediment to such a change. Because, you know, right now, a change like that, um, you know, if you actually did the things I just said, if you said, okay, we're going to pay you to keep the water clean, to sequester carbon uh, in your soil, 
um, that would be really, really bad for these giant um, seed and pesticide companies because you would uh, basically that kind of farming requires lots less pesticides, and it doesn't require fancy seeds designed to resist those pesticides. It also requires a lot less fertilizer, to go back to Fred Kirschenmann. And so all those companies see their, um, their sales and profits fall, and so they're going to fight it tooth and nail in Congress. And we know that. They're like the oil industry defending fracking. They're going to, you know, they're going to fight for their economic interests tooth and nail. And it would be nice to split off the farmers from that coalition, because right now, they are the sort of public, you know, the, the, um, U, the American Farm Bureau Federation is sort of the public face for agribusiness in this fight. And so if you push for a reform, like what I was just saying, you're going to get a guy in overalls, you know, on an ad telling you that, you know, you're, you're, you're against the American farmer. And that, you know, goes back to these sort of, you know, simplistic Jeffersonian, you know, impulses in American society. And I think it scratches yeah. a lot of people in a way that, you know, it, it, it just, you know, it's very easily, it, it's very good public relations for these companies. And so I, I think figuring out a way to get farmers signed on, which I guess is, you know, ultimately what you're asking. And, you know, yes. I think the, the answer is like, you know, basically, and this is what I try to do in the book say, you know, what are you getting from this? Um, your business sucks. Um, you, you, you're, you, you don't, you, you know, in most years, you don't make money. You make less than the cost of production. Uh, the government picks up the difference. Um, how proud can you really be of the product of just commodity corn and soybeans? They're growing the same thing in Brazil, Argentina, Ukraine. The world is, you know, um, glutted with these products. Um, what kind of food do they create? They create a bunch of fructose corn syrup and soybean oil and, you know, cheap, low-quality meat that, um, you know, the sort of ruinous American diet is based on. Um, right. And, and so, I mean, I think just right. convincing people in these positions of a different way. Um, and I also think this is, this is an idea that I've been playing at um, – more recently, and, you know, actually since I finished the book, just, you know, we have to rethink farm ownership. Like, why? Yeah. Who are these guys, <laughs> these guys that, you know, yeah. have these 20,000 acre, 10,000 acre, right. 5,000 acre farms in Iowa? Like, what, you know, this is basically, you know, it's, you know, let's be frank, it's, it's stolen land. Um, yep. It's, it's not being used in a way that is, you know, good for very many people. Um, yep. They're also aging really rapidly. The average age of farmers is, you know, pushing 60. Um, uh -huh. You know, how can we get um, what new ideas of land ownership uh, can we play with? Um, I think is is going to be a real important question going forward. Thank you, thank you for saying that. You know, <clears throat> I have looked long and hard and sought out this exact conversation. If drawdown is so great, uh, you know, just as an example, if it's so crucial, which is really the, one of the crux article, you know, arguments uh, and foundations for regenerative agriculture, then how can we leave it up to, and then the, to 
you know, as you're saying, these rugged individualists who then want to offer their, you know, their kind of uh, vegetable crop to other rugged individualists in the marketplace, and that's their only model for dealing with this whole crisis. So, you know, even though scientifically and in practice it's been proven over and over that it really is transformative, what I don't see in the conversation is what you just described, which is how do we translate this into something that is systemic rather than an attempt to cope with it on an individual entrepreneurial level um, where the people don't even, you know, they don't happen to, their philosophy doesn't even allow them to vote in their own self-interest in this regard. And any time you go into those circles, and, of course, I'm a woman, I'm an urban woman, I should probably just keep my mouth shut and stir the applesauce. Unfortunately, that's not who I am. But, you know, <laughs> when, and, you know I want to unabashedly talk to anybody just to introduce some other thinking, even if, you know, it's not something they can even imagine quite yet. But, you know, you don't, you don't, you know, there's some who, who are able to think in this more sophisticated and visionary way about how we can, as the public, use our resources to best advantage. But, you know, the whole argument that we can save, you know, the environment is unconvincing when you don't have a way to take it up and apply it systemically through, you know, the public uh, resources. And I think your questioning of who owns the land, I've had the same question. This is, you know, an obstacle that really uh, is an artifact of uh, colonialism and stuff like that. The other piece of it, of course, is if you have other power players, like, you know, there's an army of, for example, you know, people who are uh, urban-based and who, you know, have moral revulsion, um, about the way we treat livestock animals, you know, in, in confined animal operations and all of that, and would like to take all of this down. Um, but even in taking it down, we really need a considered conversation because if you just take it down but then allow the forces that want to keep growing soybeans and corn <laughs> as their commodity crop to stay in charge, then you have things like the Impossible Burger, you know, which is a soy-based product. Um, And soy, you know, it's basically animal food to some extent. Some people perhaps can tolerate it for a time. But it's really, you know, it's a way to pretend to change and to eliminate one part of the problem, which is, you know, brutal treatment of animals. But it's not a way to make a systemic change that uh, which would include, you know, growing things other than commodity crops, foods that are actually good for people, um, fruits and vegetables, healthy grains, and that kind of thing. So, you know, bravo to you because it's so hard to even have that conversation because there is, um, uh, you know, so much don't tread on me and don't go there, <laughs> you know, around all yeah. of this. And you know, it's our land and it's our food. You know, that's it. Yeah, that's right. We just have to, I mean, I think that um, it's just going to be a major challenge going forward. This, you know, this, I feel like this uh, settler colonial ideology has congealed into this kind of idea of American exceptionalism that if you actually read the, the history of how the nation was founded, what was what was going on here before European settlers showed up, the various machinations and 
competition that the various European players um, had as they competed for this for this land. Um, there's, you know, there's nothing really exceptional about it except for some nice words on a piece of paper in 1776. Um, that's that's basically all that we have. And um, and I think that you know the that has given rise to this ideology that a group like the Farm Bureau has really, really been able to leverage to keep American farmers in this um, this system that of both. You know, this paradox of both hyper entitlement and also hyper libertarianism, as you as you named it, um, and I think that's going to be a big obstacle and a big um, a, a big focus of work going forward is how to organize in a situation like that. Like you know, if you go to a place like Mexico or or Europe, um, there is this um, tradition of basically, you know. Let's let's say in the case of Mexico, smallholder farming, or in the case of Europe, peasant farming, um, that really doesn't exist here. We, we 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 and so our our food movements, um, the 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 farmer angle of them is a lot different than it is in a place like like Europe or in a place like Mexico, and the the farmer is sort of much more is encouraged to feel much more part of the ruling class, much more, you know, farmers are, are encouraged to have a kind of ruling class interest that you don't see in places like Mexico and, um, and in, in Europe. And, um, and I think that's a big problem for us. Um, and I think that they're, they're being manipulated and they're, they're, they're not, you know, ultimately acting in their economic interests unless they manage to get like a 20,000 acre um, farm in Iowa that eventually that will make money um, when, you know, it'll make a substantial amount of money when you add up all the government um, support. But it's, you know, it's just such a bad model. So in effect, it's a form of socialism given to, again, another, it's not the only one, (laughs) given to people who, you know, revile socialism and, and uh, you know, project it out onto other people who, who aren't getting anything. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, what a bad deal. Um, you know, what a bad deal. I mean, even when you say the word populism, you know, it's kind of like the idea that there could be a, um, you know, a, a positive side to populism, a functional side to populism, uh, you know, in contrast to the kind of populism we have today. I mean, that's, that's a, I mean, actually, I think developing, um, you know, a clearer picture of what other forms of populism that are, you know, active in other countries might look like. Because, you know, in effect, we don't have those models. They don't have those models. They're not being compared to anyone um, who could be a better model because it's kind of either, you know, urban dwellers who should be, you know, growing vegetables in a window box or something like that in order to, you know, be performing, um, you know, the virtuous and important act of growing one's own food, but, you know, isn't possible in all circumstances. So it's kind of like, um, you know, they're in this exalted position due to growing the food, but it's not benefiting them. It's not benefiting 
you know, the, the land that's not benefiting the soil, the water, the people eating the food, you know, what would a different form of populism look like? Uh, what would a more traditional American uh, historic populism look like in terms of helping uh, to change values and mindsets? I mean, you know, one wonders. I don't know if you've looked into any of that. that that's probably taking us beyond the purview of the book. But, um, yeah. you know, if you, yeah. But, but you know, I mean, you definitely have correctly. What is your hope for um, Perilous Bounty? We're talking today on Connect the Dots with author, journalist, and um, former farmer um, Tom Philpott, uh, who uh, is uh, a correspondent with Mother Jones in the past, has reported for Grist, uh, and has this new book coming out. What are your hopes for the book? Who would you like to be reading the book, and what? Would you like to see as, you know, what they take away from it that would help us um, shift this? That's a great question. Um, and I, I think one, um, one group of people that has been on my mind since I started writing it was um, when you go into the areas where industrial agriculture has most taken root and so the areas I'm thinking about are like, the, you know, basically the Central Valley of California and even more specifically the southern half of it, which is the San Joaquin Valley. So this is the, the valley between um, not that far north of Los Angeles over the mountains in Los Angeles. It goes about up to Sacramento. It's a rather large, two-thirds of the Central Valley. It's a rather large um, region, hundreds of miles um, long. Uh, along the spine of California. When you, when you go there, you can see just how destructive uh, and extractive industrial agriculture is to the people who live there. Um, you know, in times of water scarcity, when you've got these giant farms digging ever, ever, ever bigger wells and sucking ever more water out of the ground because, you know, basically climate change has made the, the snowpack uh, not come that year, which is a, you know, a short story of what happened in 2011, 2016. Um, you get uh, dry wells for people all over the valley, um, concentrated in a couple of places, but it, it, it happens um, everywhere. Um, and so you get, you know, literally people um, not having running water who have to go buy their own water. And these are farm, you know, essentially farm worker communities they aren't making a lot of money. Um, you also get um, lots and lots of water pollution. So in addition to water scarcity, what water does come to these areas is often polluted. So one of the reasons why is that you get, um, as the aquifer sinks, uh, water gets more concentrated in, um, in naturally occurring chemicals. There's also nitrates that have been dripping down from fertilizers. Those get concentrated. And so you get, you know, once again, even people who have access to water are having to buy water um, to, um, to to stay healthy. And these are people who, you know, may have annual incomes of twenty thousand uh, dollars, paying mm -hmm. hundreds of dollars a year for water. Um, and and so there are social movements in those areas, or people are banding together and fighting back and demanding clean water, demanding better working conditions on these farms. And um, I hope my book 
gives them ammunition. I hope they can say, they can point to my book and say, not only is this screwing us, this situation, but it's also taking the U.S. food system over a cliff. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, I hope that it can, I, I hope that it can, can be a document that supports their struggles. Um, and I think, you know, it's very much the same in the Midwest. If you go into, you know, the big corn and soybean, you know, basically all of Iowa, the, the corn and soybean regions of Iowa are the entire state, you'll see the same thing. Um, polluted water, uh, polluted air from these giant hog farms that exist there, really horrible conditions on the ground. And I hope that it can, the book can serve those movements as well. There are wonderful groups working on the ground to uh, improve that situation. And I hope it can be ammunition to where, again, they can say, look, you know, you may not care that we live next to this foul um, hog capo or that our water is laced with nitrate because we're just rural people in Iowa. But this is the, you know, the entire food system. The same thing that's polluting our water is imperiling the entire food system You've got to do something about it. So that's one set of people. I'm hoping the social movements on the ground in those areas can be fired up by it and can get something out of it and can get, um, you know, documentation for their case that their situation is intolerable and has to stop. Um, And, you know, I also have hopes that, um, you know, people who um, are going to be making policy for the next 10 or 15 years, the sort of progressive politicians and their staff will read it, um, and, you know, it will um, light a fire under them as to how, just how important this is. I mean, I think, you know, when you talk about climate change and you get people whipped into a frenzy about climate change, it can be easy to kind of forget the food system uh, but the food system is intimately involved in both driving climate change and then also even more so in being affected by it. And all the problems mm-hmm. that I describe in my book are going to be getting worse and worse and worse with time because of climate change. And, you know, hope, hopefully the, um, the social, the sort of climate movement and the you know, the progressive politicians in power now and that are going to be in power, I hope it informs them and just puts, you know, leads to, you know, helps lead to food being at the center, the food system being at the center of climate action. And, you know, I just, you know, I, I hope that um, I really admire Michael Pollan's work. I know Michael Pollan. Um, I think he's incredibly smart. Um, person who's done a lot of important work, but I feel like the way that omnivore's dilemma left people was thinking, you've been alluding to this uh, in the interview, that, you know, my personal choices are what's ma- what matters, and I have to, um, you know, vote with my fork three times a day, and I can create the food system that I want to see, and I hope my book, um, you know, disabuses them of that illusion that, you know, you can't, we're not going to consume our way, we're not going to consciously consume our way to a better food system. We're going to need uh, political action, and basically we're going to need to be on the streets. Um, we're we're going to need to um, have uh, a, a big social movement that I think can be a part of 
the climate movement. It can be part of the movement for black lives, part of the movement for um, justice for Native Americans. Um, I think food is at the, actually at the center of all those struggles. And I think that we're going to need to be out on the streets to fix them. And that's, you know, that's one of the um, only encouraging things about this um, disastrous summer of 2020 is that people care enough about the movement for black lives um, in places all across the country to get out on the streets and do something about it. And I think that um, a similar passion and zeal is going to have to animate the food movement. And, um, you know, it's, it's going to have to be more than just going to the farmer's market or voting with before. Those things are necessary right. but insufficient. And I hope that, you know, totally. I'm going to sell maybe one in a hundred of the books that Pollen sold, but I hope that some of those readers, I hope that, that this idea um, percolates and, and moves around and sort of complicates the um, conscious consumer aspect that, that Pollen left us with. Thank you. I think <laughs> I think that is exactly right on. I totally applaud you in that. It's needed to happen because it has so pervaded everyone's mind, and then they just parrot it, and no one stands up and says, is this working for us? Is this getting us where we need to go? Um, you know, people, and we've seen it also in, you know, some of the um, COVID hoax rhetoric. People get certain talking points in their mind, it works for them, and they believe it will work to forever for everyone when it clearly is not. And your book really gets up and gives us that big map, you know, so that we can kind of have the larger overview. And, you know, before the point or, you know, so that we're really doing this, what you're describing, and really getting activated about this, and not merely waiting for the day the food runs out or the water runs out because, hey, you know, exactly. that is, it's not going to be a good day. Um, Thank you so much for being with us today on Connect the Dots. I'm talking, I've been talking for the last hour with Tom Philpott, the author of a new book, which if you were like uh, Omnivore's Dilemma, if you want to know where your food is coming from and what's going on with all of that and what you can do about it, please go out and buy his excellent overview book, Perilous Bounty, which really gives us the map we need to do what we've got to do to protect and create a healthy food supply. Um, buy the book. Share this program on iTunes with other people. Thank you so much for being with us today on Connect the Dots, Tom Silva. It's been fantastic Thank talking you so much to you, for having and it's me. been great reading your book. Yeah. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for this edition of Connect the Dots. We'll be back next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern on the Progressive Radio Network. I'm Allison Rose-Levy. Mm-hmm.